When we took this to the membership uh, for a vote six years ago and said, you know, we're looking at doing this. Do you want us to do this? And we received the biggest return in, in our, our history of votes with a 93% approval. We figured it was probably a mandate and we decided that it was time to build fiber. Welcome to episode 447 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Ryan Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with ANZA Electric Cooperative General Manager, Kevin Short, and Network Administrator, Sean Trento. ANZA Electric stretches across 550 square miles in Southern California, between San Diego and Palm Springs. About six years ago, they initiated a vote to see whether membership was interested in leadership building fiber not just to electric substations and SCADA systems, but to residences as well. When 93% voted in favor, they took it as a mandate. Today, ANZA is about halfway done, building to their 5,200 members and getting a 60% take rate. Kevin and Sean share how it came together and the operational flexibility it provides the electric cooperative, including how it brings redundancy and resiliency to a region vulnerable to wildfires. Kevin and Sean tell Chris what it's like hooking up households that have never had internet access before, their recent bid for FCC RDOF funds, and the cooperative's plans for the future. Now here's Christopher talking with Kevin and Sean. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today I'm talking to, to two guys that have much better tans than I do. Uh, we're going to speak with um, Kevin Short, who is the general manager at Anza Electric Cooperative. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Christopher. Pleasure to be here. And we also have Sean Trento, who is the network administrator at uh, Anza. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you very much. So you guys are um, with the electric cooperative uh, that's serving a lot of Southern California. Um, it's near and dear to my heart because uh, last time I visited a friend out there, he was on like a Verizon cell and now he's on fiber and loving it. So, um, and for people who have listened to this show for a while, Matt Rantanen has been a guest and, and he gives you two thumbs up, loves the service, says he's excited to test out gigabit when you're ready for that. <laughs> no, we're, we're pretty excited to get that going too. Excellent. So I guess first, uh, give us folks a sense uh, a sense of the territory you serve. I, I get the sense you're in mountains, you're in valleys, you're kind of all over the place out there. You know, it's, it's really amazing for only having about 550 square miles. It's, it's pretty much as varied as you can get. We, uh, uh, we vary in elevation, for example, from very near uh, sea level, just a few hundred feet above sea level, all the way up to almost 5,000 feet in elevation. Uh, so we've got mountains, some desert, uh, uh, some coastal valleys, and so on. So quite a quite a variety of, uh, of of weather conditions here. We are in Southern California, situated between roughly between San Diego and Palm Springs. So Sean, let me ask you to just tell us a little bit about the reason that a electric cooperative would have a network administrator. Um, I, you know, I think we often assume that people have a sense of all of the, the information needs of an electric cooperative. But before we go into the consumer service, um, just tell us a little bit of what you have to do to keep the electric utility running. So we have a, a SCADA system that it gives us insight into the electrical grid and allows us to um, mitigate outages quicker and just kind of better serve the members with better information than without having it. Uh, so we've been developing that for a while alongside of our broadband project. That was actually the catalyst for the broadband pad project. Uh, 
we wouldn't even have had fiber if we didn't start with this data system that was needed. And why don't you just lease fiber from someone else? Um, it seems like almost all electric utilities take a pride in having their own service rather than just you know, saying, hey, AT&T, run me a fiber and charge me every month for it. Uh, there isn't any. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reason there. Yeah. Until we put it there, there, there simply was no plant. There was no fiber. There was limited copper. Okay. And so, Kevin, if you want to walk us back through, how do you go from putting in fiber to connect substations and do SCADA to deciding to start offering it to, to your uh, member owners? Well, it was actually kind of a combined project right from the start. Uh, the, the, the substation interconnections, all of the uh, electric equipment on the system was really uh, part and parcel of the, the, the main push for uh, decent communications. But right alongside with that, we're a roughly 94% bedroom community essentially here. Uh, we're, we're kind of sub-suburban uh, rural uh, to, to the uh, population centers around us. Uh, so our, our members' needs as a, as a cooperative, uh, we do what our members want us to do basically is the way it, it works out. So when we took this to the membership uh, for a vote six years ago, and said, you know, we're looking at doing this. Do you want us to do this? And we received the biggest return in, in our, our history of votes with a 93% approval. We figured it was probably a mandate and we decided <laughs> that it was time to build fiber. So that's, that's really how it got started. I think that's one of the reasons that some general managers don't ask their membership about that question. <laughs> <laughs> probably right that is uh i was i really wanted to get into that question of of whether this was something people were more enthusiastic about than other issues so um so you definitely heard that loud and clear oh absolutely and you know living here as well i had experienced what what was here in the past for uh, internet service and you know we could do better and, and we have been doing better sean i guess i want to one of the things that is unique to california i mean more so to you, I think, than than others. I mean, the Western states have to deal with this generally, but you have this issue of fires and and you have a lot of electric equipment. How does having this robust fiber network help you to to deal with that threat in, in the situation? Well, we have weather stations that we've deployed throughout our service territory um, that will give us real-time information about conditions so that Kevin can make decisions as to, you know, what circuits, if any, need to be turned off in a high wind and weather event. Uh, we have cameras that can monitor the uh, conditions also, and that's all, you know, helped along by the fiber being out there. And uh, that's really the bulk of it as far as communications and how that helps with it. I guess I'm curious, I mean, Kevin, to me, this seems like one of these classic questions that economists like to wrestle with, which is that, do, the, do you bear all of the costs then for putting in those surveillance cameras and running that when, in fact, you are you know creating something that has a massive public good and benefits for everyone? We do. Um, and again, you know, as a, as a cooperative existing to serve uh, the needs of the members at cost, uh, you know, we, we have to be very careful about what we spend our money on. And, and there definitely needs to be a quantifiable, uh, measurable benefit for the members. And as Sean was mentioning, all of the uh, uh, the surveillance equipment, the fire mitigation uh, efforts that we're, we're through here are extensive and expensive. And our service territory is covered by uh, 
two of the three highest tiers of, of vulnerability in terms of uh, fire uh, in, in California through their, their, uh, uh, their system that they, they make those determinations. So we've got a, we've got a very large obligation there to, uh, to make sure that we're making those decisions in a timely manner and being extremely careful about how we operate. So given those costs, and, and I guess, Sean, I might throw this to you first, what, what do the numbers look like then? Are you able to connect a sizable portion of your rate base with, with fiber with no subsidies, um, you know, given that, that generally rural electric co-ops are serving pretty low densities? Um, you know, how, do the, how do the numbers start to break down as you're looking at fiber to the home? Basically, without the subsidies, we would have been in trouble. It would have been a, probably a non-starter of the entire project. Yeah, we've been we've been very fortunate uh, to have a very proactive uh, uh, public utilities commission in California that uh, we were able to obtain uh, grant funding uh, that covered sixty to seventy percent of the cost of deployment here so far, and uh, you know continuing we were a a uh, participant in the recent FCC reverse auction the uh, Ardoff auction uh, we we did obtain some funding through that that we're starting to unravel now um but uh in the in the long term as sean mentioned it would have been very difficult for us to to justify these expenses uh uh to our board and, and to the public uh, without that uh, subsidization if we had done it we wouldn't have been able to do fiber we wouldn't have been able to do it right and, and that is one thing that the subsidies have really enabled is that we're not we haven't had to pull any punches we're able to build a really robust modern network um and Thanks to the subsidies and, and the enthusiastic membership, we can we can do it in the way that we want to do it, so that it you know will work for decades. What was your experience with Ardoff? Were you able to get a lot of the areas that you sought after? And 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 I mean, one of the things that we just saw was that people went from being excited and and sort of hoping to kind of being defensive and worried. Um, so I'm just curious if you can give us a sense of that that roller coaster. Yeah, I think you just described our experience pretty much perfectly. The expectation that we had going in, it was this was our first uh, FCC uh, auction, and uh, we had an expectation based on the consortium that we were involved in that uh, we could probably expect somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 60% uh, of the reserve amount. And the, the numbers that we saw were significantly lower than that. And I mean, significantly to the point where had it gone any lower, we would have walked away from it. Uh, we did not get all of the areas that we were after, which is unfortunate because these areas where we're at are very difficult to build to, uh, particularly with uh, uh, gigabit fiber. And there is no incumbent in the area uh, with, with fiber plant except us. So, uh, the company that was successful in those areas in the bid uh, is going to have a really hard time, in my opinion, getting it done. And uh, we have uh, made mention through our national organization with the FCC that we feel that the long form applications really need to be very highly scrutinized because we think there's uh, there's some insufficient capabilities on the part of the uh, the auction winners in a lot of areas. Yes, I think the nightmare scenario is that there's insufficient scrutiny now. Those uh, providers do not have to do 100% of the build until year six, which is seven years from now. And that means that if that were to happen, 
probably it would be 10 years from today when people living in those areas would then finally get the kind of connectivity they need. That's deeply worrisome. And that's if they do, you know, that's if they can, the people that win it, build it and don't just say, well, sorry, couldn't do it and then deal with the legal consequences. Yes. So, so where are you in your build in terms of uh, what's the rough percentage of how many of your member owners that you cover? We're, what do we figure lately here? It's uh, in the 55, 60% take rate. Yeah. Close Something to 60, along those lines. Yeah. How many of your meters have you been able to bring fiber to the home to? Well, we have roughly uh, about 5,200 electric meters, I believe. And uh, we're right in the neighborhood of 2,500 uh, 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 broadband subscribers. And uh, remember that quite a few of those meters, uh, there's more than one meter on the on the property, for example. Uh, and and um, uh, a lot of members have have multiple properties as well. So um, we've done really well in terms of uh, distribution of fiber service. Excellent. One of the things I really like to ask, uh, because I've gotten some really interesting answers over the years from, especially from electric co-ops, is what makes it worth it? I mean, um, you know, Sean, I don't see any deep rings under your eyes, but I know that that this sort of process can be harrowing. It can be very challenging. Kevin's saying maybe maybe Sean's passing that stress right up right up the chain of command there. <laughs> um, so let me talk. Start with you, Sean. Though, like, um, you know, what are you hearing, and what makes it worth it to to go through this effort? Well, we, first we live in the community and we didn't have internet before, you know, and, and I'm a network guy and kind of always have been. And so doing this is, it's meaningful in the sense that we're actually building something for ourselves that we can rely on and that we don't have to beg a, a big carrier to come in that may or may not treat us right. And, and frankly, refuse to come in at all. And so the, the first was just, it serves an immediate need. And not only for our members, but for ourselves. The second is in the last five years that I've worked with Kevin and I've gotten to to build this network and to to do things on a like not-for-profit membership focused basis has just been it's been really, really great. It's been um it's been nice to come from a corporate uh, IT background, which is where I came from, where things were kind of profit driven and and move into a space where like, here is a need, we're going to fill this, we're going to do it as cheaply as possible, we're going to do it as best as possible. And it just makes it, even though it is hard, because you have limited resources and stuff, and it does get stressful, and the lines are there somewhere, it's it's worth it, because you get to wake up and do something that's cool and meaningful. Our favorite connections are people that have never had internet before. And there's, it's, it's a lot of times we go to a house and they just, you know, sometimes they'll have a computer uh, that's never been really used. They played solitaire on it. That's about it. Connect them to the internet, show them how to use YouTube. And it's just, you know, we do um, computer classes too. We have computer classes in the evenings that um, a lot of elderly people come to. And it's just the neatest thing in the world to be able to go, here's YouTube, type in, what do you like? Oh, I like old Moto Guzzi motorcycles. And they put it in and their eyes just light up and it's like, Wow. And so maybe we get a little bit jaded with all the new cool tech all the time, but for some people, it's a new experience and it's, that's what makes it worth it. Yeah. It's really, it's really magical. I just recently, I have a five-year-old. I just recently discovered that, that some small group of people put together a racing series using Matchbox and, um, 
um, and uh, Hot Wheels cars, and they actually have these like professional like videographer rigs and these like they've done they've done all this modeling with like three D printers, and they treat it like it's a real race with real drivers and stuff, and it's just hilarious. The commentary is great, and just, there's infinite creativity out there, and I can imagine going from someone that that has not used that or has only been on dial up to suddenly seeing that it's remarkable. Um, and Kevin, what are you hearing from, uh, from members in the, in the community? Well, you know, a couple of things, one of our first, uh, major areas of focus, uh, we've got one little strip through the middle of town here on the state highway where probably 90% of the local businesses are located. And, and our very first, uh, target was that that little area getting as many of the businesses connected as we could and i think we've got darn near all of them um that was very very early on you know we wanted the businesses to have a very reliable and uh, and high speed uh internet connectivity for you know merchant transactions and and virtually everything they do on the internet these days but i think probably you know um, in the last year the most important thing has been being able to ensure that all of the the kids locally here uh, conducting school from home, uh, we were able to to work with the school district and make sure that every single kid, parent, and teacher in the area that that needed uh, internet, uh, we could get it to them. And um, you know we've got uh, free Wi-Fi in, in a couple of spots, including our front parking lot, for anybody that needs it. You know it's it's just been. Uh, uh, so well received by the by the public by the membership, um, and frankly, I I don't I can't think of uh, anything that's that's been better than that for me personally. With the, the the teachers and the students and everything, were they able to were you able to get fired them? Did you do fixed wireless in some cases? Like how nimble did you have to get to make sure that everyone had that? You know, it was it was kind of cool, and, and Sean can attest to this. You know the. We expected there to be quite a few more than we really ended up with that that we hadn't got to yet, but it turned out to be so few. I mean, virtually just about everybody already had our service uh, that that really needed it, and you know our guys were uh, able to get to the the ones that needed it very very quickly. Um, we had, I can't think of any complaints uh, from anybody that that uh, really needed it for for kids uh, trying to t- to get school at home that didn't have it. You know, I, I fully expected to have a, a long-running uh, issue with the school district because they were going to pay us to, uh, you know, get everybody connected and, and pay for their service for for the school year. And you know, we were really trying to help them out, and and it turned out we already had. So it was it was really great. Do you have um, a, a low-income challenge, or um, you know, how do you how do you do it? It's it's for people who aren't familiar. It's really hard to figure out how to offer someone a ten dollar a month connection when it may cost thirty five hundred dollars, five thousand dollars to get a fiber to their home. And so, how do you wrestle with that in the early years? Well, great question. And you know, fortunately, we've got a, a our, our board of directors is elected from the membership by the members. Uh, so they're very well aware of what's going on in the community. Uh, and, and we do have, I, I want to say it's a, about a 16% uh, roughly uh, number of, of local membership that's uh, at or below the poverty level, the state poverty level. And that's significant. And, um, you know, we rolled out a, a, a $20 rate uh, uh, last year sometime. 
uh, where we, we uh, still deliver uh, fiber all the way to the home, 20 meg up and down uh, for 20 bucks. Our voice uh, offering has always been $20 a month. Even our, our 100 meg uh, connection is, is only 49. There's no contracts. There's no installation costs. There's no data max and no caps, none of that. So it's, uh, again, uh, really focusing on the needs of the membership uh, because of our business model, I think, is, has really been the key to the success of the program. Now, I want to ask, ask you this question first, Kevin, and then I'll see if Sean wants to, to follow up. You know, I, I feel like one of the challenges electric co-ops face when they consider this is um, the customer service angle. Um, I'm guessing that you have very few calls from people who say, I don't understand how to work my toaster. And <laughs> as you get into this business, you may get calls from people who say, my internet doesn't work. And it's because their device has a problem, something that, that you're not really on the hook for. Um, you know, how does, how does getting into the, the broadband space different and, and what kind of challenges does that pose? Well, you know, I, I think Sean's probably in a better position to answer that because he gets those calls. And we've had these discussions really since since we first uh, threw together the business plan six years ago. Uh, we knew that this was going to be coming up. And we talked about uh, a subsidiary, uh, you know, type of uh, almost like a geek squad sort of thing to, to have uh, – uh, on staff capability to do this. And it, it sort of turned out that we just did it anyway. But Sean, you want to kind of take that? Yeah. So uh, you can see my management's really supportive and I don't have to um, justify this kind of stuff, which is nice. But what we do, we do pride ourselves on being able to help people with their with their issues in the house. And one thing that I've learned is that it's perception really is reality when it comes to this stuff. So I can deliver a fiber connection to a house that's 100 or 300 gigabit and it's perfect. But if their Wi-Fi has interference or their device is old or something like that, then the Internet doesn't work well. And that's all that matters is their perception of it. So we have had to do a lot more in-house stuff and take a lot more support calls and help people a lot more than you would get from a Spectrum or a front or, you know, a bigger carrier. It's something that we hope to be able to focus on more when we're fully built. Right now, uh, Nose is kind of the grindstone. We're trying to get everybody connected as fast as we can. Once that's done and we can take our resources and turn them around and go back into those houses and say, hey, how is your Wi-Fi? Are we able to help you with load balancing? Are we able to help you with connecting your devices? Are there classes that we can offer that would help you and your family be, become more internet savvy and safer? Um, that's going to be our big push in the next five years, I think. I want to ask about demand management type stuff because I feel like California's, I don't know, between five and 15 years ahead of the rest of the nation often on on a lot of this technology. Are there things that you're able to do now with that fiber network to get you efficiencies that you would not have been able to do with a, with a, you know, a remote a wireless uh, meter reading system? You know, well, you, you had mentioned uh, bags under the eyes. This this one is uh, the other one concerned with that aspect. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we are uh, a, a single radial fed uh, electric system. So we've got one set of three wires that feeds the entire service territory. Uh, we're connected to a substation that uh, belongs to Southern California Edison. And so, you know, consequently, along with living in the areas subject to those public safety power shutdowns, we are, are running as fast as possible to uh, leverage the, the broadband system 
to start talking to everything that we've got on our on our uh, electric system. Um, we just recently uh, deployed the second phase of our, our uh, uh, solar uh, generating system out here with a couple of megawatts of batteries. So we have uh, we have islanded uh, off-grid capability uh, with black start uh, capacity. So we can we can actually feed all of our businesses downtown. If we get shut off, we can turn our businesses on and get them power. Uh, if the sun is shining, we can do it all day long. Overnight, we can we can get a few hours out of it. And we're actually expanding our batteries now. But we've been uh, really heavily working on other alternatives, uh, distributed uh, storage projects, for example. We're working with... Uh, local tribes for uh, we've got one gaming tribe that has a casino with with a generator that uh, we're we're talking with them about an interruptible rate for the summer with our peaks and so on. So we've got a lot of challenges in terms of that. But without the communication uh, part of it, the, that aspect is is critical to making all the rest of it work. And is that because you need to just make sure that that if you're able to put a certain amount on the grid that you're not going to have a demand that's much greater than that that would just cause all kinds of problems? Along with the uh, the limited uh, import uh, capability, we're also limited in capacity. Uh, so we needed more on-system generation, and then the, the storage is a critical piece of that uh, that puzzle. Um, but you know we've we've seen some pretty serious rapid growth here uh, in electric demand over the last few years, um, and uh, so trying to meet that uh, with the limited import capacity that we have is 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 a critical challenge. Are there any other questions that that I didn't ask? Are there anything else that we should talk about regarding the system? I don't know. We could probably talk about it all day, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Sean, you think of anything? No, you were hitting it with the, uh, the how is the communications helping the power to distribute energy? It's funny how insightful the question was because we just got off a big call about some future stuff that's going on with that and that's going to be really beneficial. And, and you're right, it does require communications. Um, you have to see where the power is flowing, where you need it. And then in order to do it in a more distributed by house way, uh, you need to know that information throughout the service territory in real time. So that's you know how we'll be able to assist. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that again you you have so many more electric cars there than than any other concentration you know commonly across America. So I feel like you're right at that forefront of figuring out then how to stagger their charging times and and doing those sorts of things. I'm, I'm guessing they just look like batteries to us. We do have a, a EV chargers out front here that. You know, even in, in the event of a total system blackout, they're running on our generator here. So if you've got an EV, this is the place to charge it. Um, I happen to own two of them myself. So, um, you know, I think I, I think that's that's where we're going. Uh, ask General Motors. They just said that's where we're going. So uh, it's it's the, the time to plan and build for that is now. I can imagine that that your fleet you may be trying to figure out if you need to um, be reversing that <laughs> to, during those blackouts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We almost bought an EV for the company here last year. And if it weren't for COVID, we would have, we just decided we didn't need that vehicle for this year. So it's, it, it's kind of putting around locally, but uh, that's definitely in the plan. 
Absolutely. So the, the other question I had in reserve is one of personnel. And Sean, I'm curious, you, you actually mentioned something which has long been my belief, which is, um, you know, cooperatives may not be able to offer always the same salaries, um, you know, as, um, as working at a, a high tech firm, especially in California, where demand for those skills is higher. You know, do you have recommendations for how smaller entities can attract people like you that have the talent to, to come and, and work in a just job overseeing a network like this? One of the main things that first brought me that, that was enticing to me was to work locally, frankly. You know, I like living in a rural area. And so being able to work in, in my area instead of driving in California traffic every day, uh, that was one of the first, you know, hey, wow, it's on the mountain. But I think that tech people believe in tech and they believe in the power that it has to make the world better. And if you uh, want to do that, there's plenty of opportunity to apply yourself in that way. You know, I think that um, it's not a charity We we do business. We, we, you know, we make money and everybody is happy and um, it's just, you have to figure out where you want to focus your energies, you know, IT people work a lot. We work long hours and we get called at night and stuff. And do you want to do that for a major corporation to make a guy a little bit richer? Or do you want to hook up your neighbor's internet and make it make everybody happier? So that's kind of what for me uh, makes it makes it so appealing. Yeah, I can tell my self-selected audience really like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you both for for coming on. I'm I'm really excited because I've um, you've been following a little bit through through Matt and also just um, you know there's so few electric cooperatives out west that um, we love the, the this great example um, and so we hope that we see more from more from that where they are uh, trying to solve this problem. Well, we're uh, we're doing a lot of work uh, in the state here as well. Um, there aren't very many electric cooperatives in California, but you may see uh, coming up here very soon uh, with some work that we're engaged with with UC Davis and the uh, the governor's office. Uh, we're trying to promote uh, telecommunications cooperatives at the state level. Yes, that's great. Thank you both for coming on the show today. All right. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That was Christopher talking with Kevin Short and Sean Trento. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This is episode 447 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.